Well, as we sit, let's just pray as we turn to consider God's word together. Lord God, as we do turn to your word now, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we are turning not just to some old book, but to the very words that come from your mouth. And so, Lord, we remember that and we ask, Lord, that you would powerfully and clearly speak to us this evening. Would you show us more of yourself and would you draw us closer to Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? If we're being honest, it is a question that we have almost certainly asked at one point or another in our lives, isn't it? Where is God in what I am going through at the moment? Where is God in this harsh treatment? Where is God in this relationship breakdown? Where is God in this time of unemployment? Where is God in this tragedy? And more generally, of course, as we look around at the world, we ask similar questions, don't we? Where is God in all of this? In the wars, the injustice, the pain, and the sorrow that we see around us. It's a very real and a very hard question, isn't it? Where is God in all of this? And well, from our passage this evening, we can't and we won't possibly answer this kind of question in all of its fullness. There's going to be so much more to be said. What we are going to see in Genesis 45 is a really clear answer to that question. A question, of course, that we have found ourselves asking as we've been working through this section of Genesis, right? Where was God in Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery? In Joseph's unjust imprisonment? In the cupbearer forgetting Joseph for so long? So much in this story has seemed to be out of control, or just not the way that it should be. And yet this whole story has been slowly but surely building, building to this climax that we reach in tonight's passage in chapter 45, when God, through Joseph, will clearly reveal where he has been in all of this and why it's all worked out in this way. Remember, if you were with us last time in chapter 44 with Steve, we saw the culmination of these series of tests that Joseph seems to have put his brothers through to see if they were the same cruel, violent, jealous men that they were over 20 years ago when they sold him into slavery. And we saw this momentum, momentous moment last time when Judah right, stepped up in defense of Benjamin. We see Judah worlds away from the man that we saw, do you remember, in, back in that bleak chapter 38 that James spoke to us of. Yet God has been at work. God has been changing and shaping Judah, just as he has been for all of the brothers. And this is the point that we reach at the start of chapter 45 this evening. Joseph sees his brothers as changed men. God has been at work. And we read there at the start of chapter 45, if you look with me, that Joseph, seeing this, could not control himself. 
before all those who stood by him. And in verse 2, Joseph's emotions overtake him fully, don't they? Having commanded everyone else to leave the room, we read of him weeping aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh even heard it. And then we reach this climactic moment, this moment of revelation. We read in verse 3 that Joseph comes before his brothers and says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And what's the brother's response? Well, first and foremost, it seems fear. They can't answer Joseph being dismayed, we read. That is, terrified at his presence. Not only, you see, is there the shock, I guess, that this Egyptian prince-like figure is actually Joseph, their brother, But even more than that, we can begin to imagine what those brothers must have been thinking. Oh, no. Oh, no, this is not good. The brother who we treated so cruelly all those years ago is standing before us as one of the most, if not the most powerful man in this land. What is he going to do us. After all that we did to him, what kind of revenge, what kind of harsh treatment might he exact on us? And so there they are, we read, silent, dismayed, terrified. And it seems that Joseph immediately understands that this is how his brothers are feeling. Maybe he can physically see their knees knocking together, or they're shaking the terrified looks on their faces. And so just at this climax of this narrative, this story, we read these beautiful, gracious words from the lips of Joseph. First off, this beautiful invitation in verse 4. Look with me. As he invites his brothers to come near It's as if Joseph is saying saying to them, listen, I am one of you. I'm not some foreigner, as you'd imagined. You're my family. And this is how he continues, isn't it, in verse 4? Again, saying, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then second, this incredible perspective shift that Joseph presents before the brothers. Listen to verse 5. And now, do not be distressed, that is, worried, grieved. And don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, in saying this, Joseph is not only being gracious and kind to his brothers, isn't he? He's quieting their fears, but he is also doing much more than that. And this is, I guess, what enables Joseph to speak the gracious words that he does. Because we see in this verse, and in the following verses, 5 to 8 in particular, that Joseph is holding on to this perspective about God. This perspective about God that changes everything about all that he's been through. Everything about those times and those moments when he would have been tempted perhaps even right, 
to ask, where is God in all of this? See, Joseph here is turning the tables on all the hardships that he has faced. In particular here, on that cruel sale into slavery at the hands of his brothers. And he's saying, do you know that God has actually been right in the heart of all of this? In fact, he's been the one who used you, my brothers. He's the one who used you for his good purposes. Essentially, Joseph here in these verses says to his brothers, yes, you sent me to Egypt, but actually I want you to see now that it was our sovereign God and it was according to his good purposes that he sent me, his chosen servant, to Egypt. It was part of God's plan. And that's what we, I think, this evening are also called to see as we look at this passage, as we reflect on it. We are also called to see this sovereign God's good purposes in sending Joseph, his chosen servant, to Egypt, because he really did have these good purposes. Joseph going to Egypt was part of God's plan. Now, before we get into the details here, which are glorious as we look at them, what we see Joseph and the author of Genesis doing for us here is teaching us one of the deepest theological truths out there. A truth that, in truth, we will never get our heads around in full. As we also see elsewhere in the Bible, Joseph here is reminding us that God is sovereign that God is sovereign over all things, that there is nothing that happens here on earth that God is not above. Yes, people do wicked, evil things, and God is not the author of those things. We as humans are 100% responsible for the wrong that we do, and yet what we see here in this story is that as the author Jerry Bridges puts it, God was orchestrating the wicked acts of people exactly as he planned in order to accomplish his good purposes through Joseph. And the truth is, whether we see it or not here on earth, God has continued to do the same right the way through history. And he's continuing to do the same today orchestrating even the wicked acts of people exactly as he planned to accomplish his purposes. Now, as I say, this is not an easy truth for us to get our heads around. God is not responsible for evil, but still, at no point are man's evil plans outside of God's control and his plans and purpose. I want to carry on. We'll get into the specifics of the passage. I think that will help us here But I just want to say that also now, if this is something that you would like to talk more about, I'd love to talk more with you at the end of the service, over the next few weeks, whatever it might be. Because as we see, I think, particularly as we see this passage, we're going to see that actually this is a glorious perspective that changes so much of how we live our day-to-day lives. But we'll see that in a moment. For now, let's see three specific things here in this passage that Joseph mentions about God's good purposes in sending him, his chosen servant, to Egypt, how he used these brothers' evil intentions for good. First of all, look again at verse 5 with me. This is the first good purpose. 
Joseph says to his brothers, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Yes, Joseph says, you did do evil. You did sell me into slavery. But you know, it was actually God who sent me before you to preserve life. Do you remember right the way through Genesis, in God's promises to Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, there has been this promise, hasn't there? This promise of this offspring to come who would bring blessing. And as part of that is this idea of kingship, of a, of a coming royal offspring, one through whom this blessing would come. And here in the person of Joseph, I think we see pictured this idea so clearly, don't we? This Egyptian prince, as it were. Here is this Egyptian prince, royal offspring, bringing blessing to the nations. In this particular verse, preserving life where otherwise the famine that he mentions would have completely wiped it out. This is why God sent Joseph ahead of his brothers. Because if he hadn't, at this very point, you can imagine, right, we're two years into the famine, people would be beginning to die. Remember, Joseph's brothers were only 11 in what would have been that long, snaking line in the land of Egypt as they waited for food from Joseph's hand. Each and every person's life in that line, preserved, because God had orchestrated it that Joseph would be there, that Joseph would be in Egypt, that he would be sold into slavery, that he would be put in prison alongside Pharaoh's cupbearer, that the Pharaoh's cupbearer would have a dream that Joseph could interpret, and then that he would eventually tell Pharaoh himself about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. Also that Joseph could then interpret that dream and set this plan in motion that there would be food stored up to see them through this famine. This was all part of God's plan. This was God's good purpose. Even in amongst man's evil plans and intentions, God was planning to preserve life through Joseph. And of course, as we see Joseph, God's chosen servant, this prince-like figure sent by God to preserve life, And doing that even as a result of man's wicked plans. This points so clearly forward, doesn't it? It foreshadows the coming of that one promised seed that we read about right back in Genesis 3. The one who would be the king to rule over all nations. Joseph, a royal seed who many bowed down before prefigures and points us to the chosen servant, the royal seed, who one day everyone will bow before. And why did our sovereign God send this Jesus, this chosen servant, to earth? Well, just for the same reason as he sent Joseph, to preserve and to save life. Remember Jesus' own words in John 10, 10? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Of course, as one who God sent, Jesus preserved life physically, didn't he, on earth in many ways. 
He healed people. He cast, cast out demons. He saved his disciples, remember, from life-endangering storms. He raised people even from the dead. Just as for those who came to Joseph in the story, whoever comes into contact with Jesus, wherever they come from, they have their life preserved and changed. But of course, Jesus didn't just come to preserve life physically in the here and now. But he came to do so much more than that. He came to preserve life both physically and spiritually for all eternity. And how ultimately did he do that? Well, it was accomplished just as for Joseph through the evil, wicked actions of men. Men who ultimately unjustly condemned Jesus to death, hung him on a cross. Where was God in all of that? We would rightly ask, wouldn't we? The only person to ever live a perfect life, condemned, brutally beaten, hung next to two criminals. Where was God in all of this? Well, picking up on the quote that I read earlier from Jerry Bridges, here is the truth. God was orchestrating the wicked acts of people exactly as he planned in order to accomplish his purpose through Jesus. A purpose to preserve life, to offer forgiveness, to offer hope, where there would otherwise just be judgment, death, and despair. That's what we just remembered as we gathered around the Lord's table, isn't it? We remembered that while it was wicked men who sent Jesus to the cross, it was our sovereign God's good purpose and plan to send Jesus there. Because as he died, as we sang earlier, if we have come to him, our guilt, our cross was laid on his shoulders. He suffered, bled, and died in our place. Here again is what Jesus himself says about this. John 3, 16. And again, just look at how the pattern follows this pattern of Joseph as well. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave... We could say he sent, couldn't we? He sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As we see our sovereign God's good purposes in sending Joseph to Egypt, this prince-like figure being the one to preserve the lives of all who come to him, so now we also can look back and see our sovereign God's good purposes in sending the promised king, Jesus, to earth and then to the cross as the one who will today continue to preserve and save the lives of all who will come to him. As we see this glorious truth of what God is like, how he works such good things, even where men plotted evil, It's worth recognizing that as we sit or stand here this evening, we are in many ways just like the brothers who we see pictured in these verses. We are those who in our sin have, metaphorically speaking, sold Jesus off into slavery. We are those who ultimately condemned him to death on the cross. And so just like the brothers coming into his presence, we have every reason, don't we, 
knowing that to be dismayed, to be terrified. Just as the brothers were when they came face to face with Joseph. And yet this evening, we too find gracious words in the mouth of Jesus as we stand before him. Come near to me, please, Joseph had said to his brothers. Well, now Jesus says the same to us this evening. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. God sent me here before you to die on this cross to preserve your life. Now come near to me. Come. Come and find life. It can be yours to the full. As you sit there this evening, if you have not already done that, if you have not already drawn near to Christ as, you call, as he calls you to him, why not this very evening do that? His arms are open wide, and in grace he is calling you to himself, and he's holding out the best thing that anyone could ever offer you. Life. Life now and eternal life to come. But of course, Joseph doesn't stop there in his unpacking, his showing the brothers of the sovereign God's, our sovereign God's good purposes and sending him to Egypt. Look with me now at verse 7 and see what he adds. Verse 7 same point again, pretty much. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And again, notice Joseph's intentional language here. Just as in verse 5, it was God who sent him before his brothers. The finger isn't pointed here at the brothers, is it? And the purpose here to preserve this remnant on earth. And the language that Joseph uses here, I think purposefully points forward as we look at the whole of Genesis. Not only has God sent Joseph to Egypt to preserve life now, but he also sent him to Egypt to ensure that Jacob and his family line would not end with this generation, but that there would be successes, there would be future offspring as well. And of course, as I've just said, this is so crucial as we look at the whole of the book of Genesis, isn't it? What has the book been? It's been this continued search for the one promised right back in Genesis 3, the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent, the one in whom all nations of the earth should be blessed. And right now, if that one promised is, as we know, only prefigured in the person of Jacob, of Joseph, sorry. That means that God is going to have to work out a way for this family line to continue. That search and that wait is going to continue. And the way that God preserves that family line is by sending Joseph, isn't it? By sending Joseph to preserve God's chosen people and family. That this famine would not be the end for them either. And therefore, this famine would not be the end for God's promises. And in this way, Joseph's words point us to God's faithfulness to his promises, don't they? He has promised to send this seed, this serpent crusher, 
And a famine, that this famine that we see pictured here in these, these chapters is not about to put an end to that. In fact, here's the principle that we see here. Nothing that we see happening around us in this world, as terrible as it might seem, as out of control as it might seem, as hard to understand as it might seem, nothing can ever prevent the Lord from fulfilling his promises and from accomplishing his good purposes. Again, we see this ultimately worked out in God sending the one who Joseph foreshadows his chosen servant, Jesus, into the world. Picking up on what we're just saying here, remember how the book of Matthew opens? We might well read it over the next few weeks. It opens with a genealogy. Starts right back at Abraham, at Isaac, at Jacob and his family. And it continues on and on and on until generations later, we see the coming of Jesus, who's called Christ. As we'll be remembering over this coming month or so, the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the long-promised seed, he has come. And he has crushed the serpent's head. Our sovereign God's good purposes in sending Joseph to Egypt was all enabling and pointing forward to our sovereign God's good purposes in also later sending Jesus to earth to crush the power of Satan, to abolish death, and to bring life and immortality to light in the gospel. Again, all of this points us, doesn't it, to this sovereign, faithful God pictured here in this chapter. This God who has proven through history that he will do all that he says he will for his people. He's ultimately proven that through the coming of Christ, through his death and his resurrection. And that means that today we too, as his people, can be confident that all he has promised us, he will also bring to fulfillment. And what kinds of things could we say that he has promised us today? Well, promises like the one in his word that he will complete the good work that he has begun in us. Or the promise of Christ himself that he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us and will one day come back and bring us to himself. These and so many more are our sovereign God's good purposes for you and for me. And we need to regularly remember, rejoice and rest in the truth that we see here in this passage. That nothing and no one will stop him from coming through on those promises for us. God is faithful. God is sovereign. And he is mighty to fulfill all of his promises to you. Hold on to that truth, whatever you end up facing this week. And then there's one more thing that Joseph shows us here, presents to us in, in showing us so, her the sovereign God's good purposes in sending him. And that is to make him a ruler who could and would bless his people. Look with me at verse 8 as we see this from there and then on through the rest of the passage. First of all, Joseph summarizes his main point in all of this, doesn't he? Here's his summary. So it was not you who sent me here, 
but God. And then we see this final reason. And at first glance, it seems to be for the purpose of personally blessing Joseph, doesn't it? He says, God has made me Lord of all of Pharaoh's house and ruler over the land of Egypt. And I guess this blessing of Joseph is no doubt a good and a genuine part of why God has acted like this. But I think the rest of this chapter here shows us the wider purpose. That ultimately Joseph would be in a position and he would have the power and ability to bless the rest of his family. In verse 9, we read of Joseph telling his brothers to go get his father Jacob and to bring him to Egypt. And then look at what follows. Verse 10 Because of who God has made him to be, this ruler and Lord, Joseph is then able to make them extraordinary promises, isn't he? That they can all then return to Egypt, his father too, and that they can live in freedom in Goshen, in the best of the land, near to Joseph. And then verse 11, that Joseph would provide for them all that they need. And because of who God has made Joseph to be, And what he has done, we then read of Pharaoh getting in on the act here too, don't we? This is what we see if you look, glance with me at verses 16 to 24. We're not going to go into the detail of this. But again, we see here Pharaoh promising glorious things, good things for Joseph's family. That they can have the best of the land. That they they could have all that they possibly need when they get there. And provisions are given not only for the journey, but then even more in abundance as well. Look at verse 23. The brothers are sent back to Jacob with 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, provision for his father on the journey. Now, we're going to see this and get into this in much more detail over the next few chapters as we see God's abundant blessing of his people as they come to Egypt and as he continues to work out his plan to make them a great nation. But for now, again, here is the point of these verses at the moment. God sent Joseph ahead of his brothers and ahead of his family with this purpose, to put him in a position where he could provide in abundance for them. To put them in a position, to put him in a position where not only would Pharaoh welcome this family of foreigners in, something he would undoubtedly never have done otherwise, but that Pharaoh even would also join in blessing them, giving them the best of the land. And in so many ways, what we see here in these verses as we look at them in entirety, the wagons, the best of the land, the change of clothes that Joseph gives to his brothers, the donkeys loaded with good things, they all again point forward. They all again point forward to the present reality that we today enjoy in the promised king, the chosen servant Jesus. As we were thinking about this morning, Jesus right now is not just merely Lord of all Egypt like Joseph was. No, he is Lord and glorious, sovereign ruler over all things. Gloriously reigning 
from his throne in heaven. And as we read in Ephesians 1 verse 3, in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Wagons, donkeys loaded with good things, changes of clothes. Well, today, here are those blessings for us. We've been chosen. We've been predestined. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We've been recipients of God's grace. And we are those with a glorious inheritance. We are those who are filled with hope. Those are just some of the blessings that Paul goes on to list in Ephesians 1. And the list could go on, couldn't it? Because of God's sovereign plan to send his chosen servant, Jesus, the promised one, we now are those who this evening are more blessed than we could ever imagine. And just notice with me as we consider this, that it brings us, I think, right back to our opening question. As we think about our own lives and the lives of those around us, and even the state of the world that we look out on, we can ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? It all seems to be going belly up. It's not as it should be. Where is God? Can he really be there and working for my good? Well, here in what we've just seen in this chapter, we have a clear answer, don't we? First, because of Christ who Joseph prefigured. We can remember all that the Lord has already done for us. He has given us eternal life. He has given us precious promises that we know he will fulfill for us. He has given us an abundance of blessings that we don't even come close to deserving. That is what God has done. And that is also what God continues to do in your life, if you're a Christian today. Where is God in all this, in my life? Well, he has already shown himself to be the one who has met your greatest need. And he is the one who will ultimately, no matter what you face in the rest of your life, will bring you through. He will hold you fast. He will bring you safely home to himself. Nothing can stop that, and nothing will. Now, as we reflect on that glorious truth, and all that we've been seeing here this evening, there's so much more we could say. I'd love to get a bit more into some of the details of this passage. But for now, I just want us to, to close by drawing out three points of application, things for us to, to think on and hold on to as we go on into this week. How this perspective of God at work in this passage changes things for us. And first of all, I want us to see how all that we've seen here speaks peace and speaks hope to us. We see that he speaks peace and hope to us because it means that instead of, as we look at the world around us, all that's going on, all that's going on in our lives, Instead of fearing 
that every hard thing that we face or every hard thing that we hear about might be jeopardizing God's good plan for us or for the world at large. They might be like that wave that finally sort of feels like it pushes us over the edge of the boat and we, get sink, we start sinking. Well, no, we can know that as hard as it is to understand, God is above even those things. And he will keep holding us fast. He will keep working out his good purposes for us. Yes, the waves and the storms of life, they will still soak us. They, they might even rock us a bit as they hit us. But the truth of this passage It shows us that they will never overcome us. Because we are standing as Christians on the solid ground of God's sovereign, unshakable, good plan. Good plan for our lives and good plan for this world. And because of that, we can find peace, hope, stability that we will never find anywhere else in this world. Nothing and no one can stop our God and his good purposes. Let's remember that this week for ourselves. Whatever we face, whatever we read about in the news, and let's let that truth speak peace, hope, stability to us. Secondly then, this perspective that we see Joseph present here in Genesis 45 should also begin to make us change how we actually view the hard times that we do go through. See, what we see here is not just that, as we said, God will hold us fast through those hard times. Yes, that is true. And that's important to remember. But we can actually go one step further from what we see here in this story that God was even using those hard times for Joseph's good and for the wider good. Now again, we might not see this in our own lives, in the here and now. We might not see this ever, this side of heaven. But what was true of Joseph is also true for you and for me this evening. To quote Jerry Bridges again, God is continuing to orchestrate all things, even the wicked acts of people that might come against you, exactly as he planned in order to accomplish his good purposes for us. What kinds of purposes, we might ask? Well, maybe it's our ongoing sanctification, Christ-likeness. Maybe it's the fact that that pushes us into crossing paths with someone who we can speak the gospel with, who would otherwise never have heard of Christ. Maybe because something that goes on in our lives means that we end up living lives in increasing dependence on God, knowing that we can only do it in his strength. All of those things are good things. And the reality is we don't always know what God is doing with the hard things that we face. But Joseph's story, and of course a verse like Romans 8, 28, reminds us that God is doing something. And it is always for our good. And that can help us, can't it? That can change our perspective 
as we go through the hard times that we so often do go through here on earth. And third and finally then, from this passage, we have to see this, because I think this is part of the glorious, even more here, even at the end, as we look at, at Joseph being reunited with his father. But from all of this passage, I think what we see here should help foster an attitude of forgiveness and reconciliation in our lives. As I said, this is what we see right the way through these verses, isn't it, in Joseph? Knowing that God had his purposes, even in his brothers, treating him as cruelly as they did. Well, that allows Joseph, doesn't it? It frees Joseph to forgive them, to let go of this sin. I mean, just look at verse 15. If you want a picture of the glory here, of Joseph's forgiveness and the picture of the glory of reconciliation. Verse 15, and Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Again, how could Joseph be like this? How could we go from where we were in the past few chapters to this moment of reconciliation, of forgiveness? Well, we surely only get there by Joseph remembering this truth that he's presented to us. That while his brothers had evil intentions in selling him, the wrong that he had faced was actually part of God's good plan for his life. Now, don't get me wrong. As I say, this forgiveness is almost never easy. But here is a starting point for us as we look at this passage, remembering how God will not have wasted what that thing is that you have been through, that he will have been at work in it, even for your good. That changes things, doesn't it? I wonder, as we think of that, who could you begin to pray this evening even, that God would help you to forgive in your life? with this perspective in mind, that God will not have wasted what you went through. All while, of course, remembering the beauty, as I've just said here, the beauty of reconciliation, renewed relationships. That's what we're going to go on and see as Joseph and Jacob are reunited next week. It's beautiful. This fosters forgiveness and reconciliation, which is, again, God's good purpose. This is a glorious chapter, isn't it? Seeing all of this as we close, let's just pray to God. Let's pray to him and continue to thank him for this perspective, to thank him for his work in our lives and how he is continuing that work even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And again, we thank you that it is your word to us. Lord, we thank you so much for this perspective that this chapter has presented to us of your sovereign good purposes in sending Joseph to Egypt, even when his brothers sold him out of envy and jealousy. Lord, we thank you that you had a good plan for him that it was to preserve life, to preserve this promise, this remnant, the one who would come, 
And Lord, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your sovereign good purposes in sending him here to earth. And then even through the wicked acts of people to send him to the cross. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that we find there. We thank you for those gloriously good purposes that as he did die on the cross, according to your purpose, we can find hope and life. Life now and life for eternity to come. Lord, there's no doubt that much of what we've seen this evening is also difficult and hard to get our heads around. But Lord, we thank you for this perspective that you are above all things and that you are at work and that you will continue to be at work in us for our good. Lord, please, with that perspective, give us peace and hope as we go on into this week, whatever we face. Lord, please, with that perspective, change even as we change how we view the difficult things that we do go through, knowing that you are in them. And Lord, please would you help us, even as we see this example of Joseph, to go on from here to be those who forgive and who seek reconciliation in our lives, we ask. We thank you again for your goodness. We thank you again for your good purposes and that we can look to you in all that we go through. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the words of our final song pick up on much of just of what we've been thinking about now. Let's respond as we sing together now of God's sovereignty. Let's stand as the musicians play.
to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Do you take your seat?